Thank you. So that's um, Luke chapter 15. Um, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the parts that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, 
You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Thank you so much uh, to Johnny for leading the service to this point and to all those who have taken part. And now as we come to the Word of God to study it in more depth, let's uh, come again in prayer and let's ask for the Lord's help that He would assist us and that He would convict us of the truth that He has for us this evening. So let's pray together. Lord, we've just sung together only... By grace can we enter. Lord, maybe many of us have tried to come to you by all sorts of different ways. And yet, Lord, we confess that we find it difficult to come by grace alone. Not by anything that we've done, not by any merits of our own. Lord, forgive us for times where we've sought to please you by the things that we do which, Lord, so often are sin-sullied. Lord, we pray that you would help us tonight to turn to your grace and to throw ourselves on your mercy and on the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would assist all of us to, to, to get grace, to understand it tonight and to come to you, to come home, perhaps. We pray this, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Perhaps it was the tattoos on his bare arm, or maybe it was just his notorious face. But for whatever the reason, the church congregation was most uncomfortable when old John, as everybody knew him, brushed through the back doors of the church meeting. In fact, somebody audibly gasped, what's he doing here? Even as his dishevelled appearance slouched its way down to a front pew. And as John waited for the start of the service, he soon discovered that he was pretty unwelcome in such esteemed company. For one thing, he could almost feel the Holes burning in the back of his head as every leery eye peered at him. And then there was the disgruntled couple who asked him to vacate their seats and move along the row. And I guess if John hadn't come to church so desperate, which he was, he would have left thereafter. However, as the service started, and particularly as the sermon commenced, Everything else paled into the background. As John heard the gospel about Jesus Christ, he learned that he was a sinner. Well, he already suspected that. But he also discovered something wonderful, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had died on a cross for his sins. This was news to him. This was good news. And indeed, it was an offer that was too good for John to refuse. And that night he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ down there at the front of the church. Well, you might have thought that everyone else would have been as pleased about this as John was. 
However, at the end of the service, as he turned to, to, to speak to someone about this, everyone had scampered out the back doors. And even the minister, uh, when told of John's conversion, looked rather sceptical. As if someone like John could never come to Christ. Well, I don't know how such a story strikes you, but it's a very ugly attitude, isn't it? It's a very ancient attitude uh, that this represents. In fact, it's the same attitude that we find in the, in the scripture that we just read together. This graceless, arm's length attitude that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had. These Pharisees and scribes. These pious and pompous people who looked down their self-righteous noses at everyone else. Not only did they steer clear of the sinful establishment themselves, but they also criticized anyone who mixed with such notoriety. Actually, this was one of their most frequent criticisms against Jesus. In fact, we read it together in Luke 15, verse 2. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Oh, the shame. Now, let me ask you, were, were they right about this? Was that congregation right in their attitude towards old John? What would Jesus have to say in response to the criticism leveled against him? Well, in actual fact, Jesus helps us think about this issue by presenting three parables to us this evening. Three parables which defend Jesus, not in a direct way, but indirectly. Three parables, you see, which describe God's heart for lost people, for sinners who repent and who come home to the fold. And what Jesus says is that God doesn't keep sinners at arm's length. What Jesus says is that God seeks for sinners and that God saves the lost and that God welcomes repentant people. And get this, He even celebrates. He throws a party when they come home. In fact, Jesus calls upon the Pharisees, what cheek this is, to join the party. He says, in effect, come on, come in and celebrate the grace of God. Don't stand outside grumbling and judging. Come in and celebrate with us. That's really the challenge of Luke chapter 15 this evening. And I invite you to reopen your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 15. Three wonderful parables. One about a man, one about a woman, and one about a family. Parables, in some ways, quite similar, with some common themes. Did you notice in reading the story how each uh, story has certain components? There's something lost, verses 4, 8, and 24. And then there's something found, verses 5, 9, and 24. And then when the lost thing is found, there is great joy, verses 7, 9, and 32. We need to see, as we read, that these parables are connected I also want you to see tonight something maybe you haven't noticed before, that there are also some contrasts in the story. Often I think we we see the commonalities between the parables, but we don't see the contrasts. So let me suggest to you that, that we find here contrasting responses to those who repent. Here's the first 
uh, side of the contrast. It's laid out in the first two parables. Uh, let's head it. Celebration in heaven. Celebration in heaven. Notice that verses 7 and 10 tell us the point of the parable, the punchline of the first two parables. It is rejoicing in heaven or rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I don't know what it is that, that makes you happy. I, I don't know what it is this evening that floats your boat. Maybe it's a car that's your pride and joy. Uh, perhaps it's a relationship that, that has you grinning from ear to ear. But what I do know for certain is what makes God happy. What thrills the heart of God? What makes heaven party? When one lost sinner repents. Of course, for, the, for a sinner to repent, for someone to be lost, in the words of the parable, they have to be, to be found in terms of the parable, they have to be lost in the first place. Notice how the, the two parables begin with a man and a woman who have lost something. On the one hand, there's a, a sheep that is lost, and on the other hand, there's a coin that is lost. One of the key things to see here is that each of these things have considerable value to the owner. On the one hand, the, the man with a hundred sheep who loses one. It's not a huge financial loss, to be sure. And I guess in business today, he would have just written off the loss. You see, for this shepherd, for someone who knows each sheep by name, who lives his life with his sheep, this was a personal loss. And in the woman's case, well, she has ten coins, and she loses one coin. Now, this was a significant financial loss. Now, don't be misled by the fact that this was just a penny coin. You know, if we drop one penny coin in the street today, uh, some of us wouldn't even reach down and pick it up. Unless you're Scottish, of course. Uh, but this coin is not inconsequential in value. This is actually equivalent to a day's wage. And so what would you do in such a situation? What do you do? If you lose a sheep that you love and you're a shepherd, if you lose a coin that you value, when that new mobile phone that you bought uh, about a week later, someone's laughing down there, you've lost one, haven't you? And you just can't find it anywhere, oh well, big deal, you say. You turn the house upside down, you rack your brains, where did I put it? You scour the place, you search for it until you find it. You get out on that hillside, you get down on that floor. And what is the point of this? Of course, this parable is not really about a shepherd, per se. It's not really about a woman, per se, who loses a coin. Of course, this parable teaches us something about God. And it teaches us that this is what God does too. That when God loses something that is precious to Him, not sheep, not coins, but people, lost people, He searches them out. Some people have this idea of God that He sits up in heaven, unconcerned, unmoved, unfeeling, disinterested. Where do they get this idea? Not from the Bible. It's true that God is enthroned in heaven, of course. But it is equally true that God today, by His Spirit, 
through his church, is wandering the hillsides of the world looking for lost people. God sweeps today the dirty floor of our sin-sullied world. And he's looking for people who are lost. And you know, if God doesn't do this, if you ever consider this, if he doesn't make this search, the reality is we are lost for eternity. This might be stating the obvious, but I often state the obvious. Wandering sheep don't find their way home, do they? Uh, your, your cat or your dog might find its way back. They've got this inbuilt sat-nav. But sheep don't have that. Sheep, when they're lost, they're lost. They can't retrace their steps. And it's the same when you think about the coin as well. A coin is an inanimate object. It doesn't jump up and clunk you in the face. It doesn't waddle its way back into your wallet. If you do not search out the coin, if you do not... Sweep the floor for it. You will not find it. And friends, if God does not seek and retrieve us, we won't be found either. When I was lost, we sang together, you came and rescued me. Reached down into the pit and lifted me. Reminds me of the story of a convert who uh, gave his testimony at, at a church service. And he explained how after many years of wandering from from God, how he was found by God. And after the service, one disgruntled member of the congregation took him aside, collared him, uh, and said, what, what did you mean when you said that God found you? Didn't you play your part? Oh yes, the convert replied, I played my part. For the last 30 years, I ran as far away from God as my sinful legs would carry me. That's our part, folks. It's true, isn't it? Our only contribution to being found is being lost in the first place. But God searches us out. Perhaps it was more dramatic for some of us than for others, but God searched all of us out if we are his children. We were in the middle of nowhere, weren't we? God found us. Found us like the sheep, verse 5, like the coin, verse 9. And it resulted, maybe we weren't aware of this when it happened, but it resulted in great joy. Just think back to that uh, mobile phone that you lost, or purse, or set of keys. Uh, you've been searching around for it all day. You've given up hope of finding it. And you just happen to brush around your back pocket, and oh, there it is. This happens to me all the time. Um, just think. It's a pretty insignificant thing, a mobile phone. Just think of the joy you felt. Just, just remember the, the sheer relief you felt when you found that fairly insignificant thing. This woman feels great joy when she recovers the coin, verse 9. She gathers her friends around. Just as you go to your friends, and even though you sound a little bit silly, you say, you know, I lost my phone and it was just there. But you're so happy about it. And don't you just love this shepherd? Verse 5, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he takes it home. That's pretty happy, isn't it? I've never carried a sheep around my uh, shoulders. I don't think I ever want to do this. How heavy do you think a sheep is? How smelly do you think a sheep is? And this man doesn't care. He carries it all the way home. 
And when he gets home, he's probably exhausted after this. He still invites his shepherd friends around and he has a party. That's the joy he feels. Now, again, what's the point of these very simple pictures? Here's the point of this, verse 7. The point is that this is something like, it's just a little glimpse of what heaven's joy is like when sinners repent. I tell you, verse 7, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, who turns around to God, than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Verse 10 says almost the same thing. In the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That is to say that God not only searches for lost people, but he celebrates when he finds them. He searches and he celebrates. He searches and he celebrates. Well, let me just ask you this evening, is, is that a picture that you have in your mind of God? Is that the way that, that you think of God? As one, one who seeks out lost sinners and then celebrates when he finds them. I don't think many people do think of God that way, to be frank. I think a lot of people think that God is for good people. That God is for moral people. That God's only interested in church-going people. A few months ago, I was involved in a, a funeral, and uh, while well, the car driver was taking me up, he was asking me uh, about the job that I did, and it was like a little reflex. He quipped, oh, I'm a sinner, you know. As if that sort of ruled him out of religious things. I didn't say to him, I, I should have had the courage to say, wonderful, you're exactly the kind of person God's looking for. God only see, seeks out lost people. Jesus actually said earlier in this gospel that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's the lost sheep, it's the lost coin. Are you lost tonight? You totally lost your way in life? Wonderful. God's looking for people like you. And you know, he would rejoice tonight. He would... He would be exceedingly joyful. Heaven would rejoice if you came back to Him. If you turned from your sin and you trusted in the person of Christ. I think too, before we leave this, that this is also important for Christians to grasp as well. And we have this picture of God for, for evangelism to inspire us. I'm indebted to Dal Bock, one commentator who who points out that at the beginning of the lost sheep story, Jesus asks, which of you? Jesus doesn't tell some abstract story about some shepherd and some sheep somewhere. No, he, he invites them into the story. He makes them the shepherd. Which of you, if your sheep was lost, wouldn't go? See, primarily, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, but there's a point being inferred here too, that God calls us to be part of the rescue team if we're believers. And it's going to take the same time and effort as it took the woman sweeping the floor. I don't know how long it took her. And as it took the shepherd combing the hillside until he found it. It's going to take our time to leave the 99 sheep for a while to retrieve one lost sheep. Many people today might not think that's good use of resources. And we know that church is important. We know that pastoral care is very important. We know that the meeting together, as we're doing tonight, is very important. But if that is all that we do, we're going to have wonderful sheep care, but no new sheep for the fold. 
But if I could be even more strong, we may need to neglect some pastoral care. While we're doing this, you know, this shepherd, when he was out looking for the one sheep, left the 99 in the hill. Perhaps for some of us, this wouldn't be the case for all of us, but maybe for some of us, we're actually doing too much church. Or too much work. To the neglect of seeking lost sheep. My wife and I were chatting recently about how we're getting on reaching out to the area where we live. We've got this little campaign, Cramming for Christ. Actually, it's quite difficult, so we're shortening it down to Cramond Avenue. It would be just a more subtle start. And the, the progress report was we're not doing as well as we could do. And one of the problems is that I'm not there enough. You know, Nick is so busy looking after all the children and I'm not there, so it's hard to, to build relationships when you're not there. And you see, above all, we're going to have to understand not only the time and the commitment, but we're going to have to understand what a priority this is to God. The conversion and salvation and retrieval of lost people is really what makes Him rejoice. So it caused God to send His Son, His one and only Son, to a hillside to die for our sins. That's how far Jesus came to retrieve us. That's how much He cares. So that's the celebration of heaven. That, that, that's God's perspective on the retrieval of lost people when they repent. But I wonder, if that's not our attitude tonight, perhaps we fit more closely with the second attitude. So I call this contrasting response indignation on earth. Indignation on earth. Now this is not what the, what the whole parable of the, of the lost son is about. But I I do believe, I've been studying it this week, that that this is the emphasis in many ways of this lost son parable or the forgiving father parable or you might want to call it the angry son parable. It seems to me that the spotlight falls on that in the second half. But let's get the first part of the story. And notice again uh, some of the similar themes coming through. That again it commences with something that is lost. Not a sheep, not a coin, but a son this time. This is what it's about. It's about people. And he's actually one of two sons, verse 11 tells us. And he's the youngest son. He's an older brother, and we'll come back to him at the end of the story. Yet as verse 12 also makes plain, he's a selfish son. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. This was a culturally disgraceful thing to do. To request one's inheritance while your father was still alive, even before he was dead. Give me my share of the cash. And his father could have slapped him in the face, but instead he puts his hands in his pockets and graciously gives him what he asked for. And you know the story, perhaps. The son heads off into the far country, far away from the dictates of his father, far away from the gaze of accountability with pockets full of money and a head full of nonsense. And the inevitable happens. Verse 14 says that soon he had spent everything. All the money squandered. And actually, it's a double whammy, isn't it? Because as he runs out of money, he also runs into famine. So not only does he not have money to buy food, but there's not any food on the shelves anyway. And so with an empty bank account and an empty stomach... He has to get a job. Any job will do. 
And he could only get the lowest of the low employment. This job, feeding pigs. We were meant to get the irony of this. Uh, a pig was an unclean animal uh, for Jews to, to work with. And so he must have been in dire straits to even contemplate this job. By verse 16, he's hit rock bottom. That's where he is, isn't it? He's in the pigsty. He is where sin always leads us, to the pigsty. He's hungry. He's unsatisfied. And we know this is the experience of many people, isn't it? That they have to hit rock bottom before they'll look up to God. Absolute rock bottom. And so it was for this younger son that in the pit, in the pigsty, hungry, desperate, verse 17, he came to his senses and he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He recognizes that that even working for his father would be better than this. Maybe he thinks, I can't be a son anymore. But at least I could be a slave. And so he sets out and he heads home to his father. Wondering if he'll ever be received. And then verse 20 tells us that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, another cultural surprise. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. This was utterly unheard of. In these days, the father was a regal figure. He only addressed you if you addressed him with respect. And he certainly didn't run anywhere. But this father runs. This father has a heart full of compassion. And this father has arms wide open for this son who has been lost has been found. Now, interestingly, this is a little sidelight here, but notice how this brings a bit of balance to the first two parables. Notice here that it's not the father who seeks the son, but the son who returns to the father. See, in the first two parables, we learn of God's initiative, and in the last parable, we learn of human response. The first shows us divine sovereignty. The second shows us human responsibility. Now, I just mentioned that. It's not a quaint theological point, is it? Because this can be a real hindrance to some people when they learn that God seeks and saves the lost. Oh, well, they say. I just need to wait, wait around, sit around for the rescue party. No. The one who God rescues is the one who repents. The one whom God goes out to find is also the one who's coming for home. So that's why if you are not a Christian this evening, it is vital that you don't remain in the pigsty. That you come to your senses. That you depart from the life that's put you in this squalor. And that you come back to the Father. And maybe you're saying, I don't even know what I would say to Him. Here's a prayer for you. Verse 21. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He didn't say, I'm sorry for what I've lost. He says, I'm sorry for what I've done. I've sinned against you. Have you come to that point of recognition in your own experience? I want to assure you tonight that if God brings you to that point this evening, and if you turn to Him down that homeward road, God the Father will accept you. He will run to you. That's incredible language for God, isn't it? I don't think there's anywhere else in the Bible that carries this language. And look at this. Uh, You'll start your pre-prepared speech. You know, he's got a speech worked out about what he's going to say. We read it in some of the earlier verses. And 
He doesn't even get through the speech. He's interrupted. Before the son can say, make me like one of your hired men, that was his conclusion. The father jumps in, starts instructing the servants. Put the best robe on him. Get a ring, put it on his finger. Get some sandals and put the sandals on his feet. And grab the the fattened calf, the best calf that we have, and kill it. We're going to have a party. All of these things, by the way, indicate that he's being accepted as a son. Because slaves didn't wear sandals, they didn't have rings, they didn't have robes. And they certainly didn't have the fattened calf killed for them. And so again, we see the great joy of the Father. As he celebrates... Verse 24, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I mean, it's one thing to lose a coin. It's it's one thing to lose a sheep, but it's another thing to lose a son, isn't it? And he celebrates. Now, same things as before, but I want you to notice there's a new element that comes in. Notice here that there's no punchline like the last two parables. There's no, verse 7, verse 10... There's rejoicing before the angels of God before when one sinner repents. No punchline like that. That's not the point, the primary point of this parable. It's true, but it's not the point. The punchline, the conclusion of this story is the sulking brother. The angry brother. Now he is, of course, the older brother. We've actually met him already in in verse 11. We were told that the father had two sons. In fact, let me suggest to you, we've already met them in the other parables too. Because, in fact, the older brothers represented by the nine coins that never get lost. And represented by the ninety-nine sheep that never go astray. Here he is. This is the older son that stayed home. And we learned some, uh, something of a good thing about the son in verse 25. That clearly he's a hard-working fellow. Notice, will you, that he's out in the field. He's not fled the nest. He's tending his father's farm. He's working and he's laboring and he's sweating in the heat of the day. And we're told that on this particular day, he'd been out working, as he always did, and he comes near to his father's house and then he hears something. It's music and and it's dancing. And he can't understand this. There's not a scheduled celebration. So he calls over one of the servants. He says, what on earth is going on? And the servant says, oh, haven't you heard? Your brother's returned. And your father is thrilled. And he's thrown a party. He's killed the fattened calf. And the older brother, verse 28, became angry and refused to go in. He was hopping mad. And so he stays outside sulking and moping in the shadows. He won't join this party. Verse 29 and uh, 30 tell us why. As the gracious father comes out, he hears about this, and he comes out to plead with his son. He says, come in, come on, let's celebrate together. Verse 29 and 30 tell us why. He says, basically, well, I've been good and my brother's been bad. He's been bad, but you've treated him good. He says, I deserve wonderful parties. You don't give them to me. This other son of yours is unworthy, and you throw him a party. If you think about this, it reveals a lot about this older brother's worldview, doesn't it? 
First of all, he, he views his brother as worthless, doesn't he? This is just old John. This is the guy that's, that's lived a notorious life. Notice also that, that he views his father as a taskmaster. So though he lives in close proximity to his father, he's actually not in a close personal relationship with his father. He doesn't know his father's grace. He thinks of his father as someone that you work for and that you earn from. And notice, worst of all, that he views himself as, as self-righteous. He's earned his stripes. Who's this Johnny come lately? I mentioned last uh, Sunday morning that I've been watching recently the TV drama Band of Brothers. Appropriate, I guess, on this day. It's a dramatized take on, a, on an army company who served through the Second World War. And they were involved in some horrific battles. They lost more than half of their men. And one of the later episodes, of course they're, they're losing men left, right and center, one of the later episodes is called Replacements. And the whole uh, episode is about those who came in to replace the guys that were killed. Because they needed the same number in the company. And it showed how these new recruits were not well accepted by everyone else. These Johnny-come-latelys. The attitude was that they weren't in the in crowd. The attitude was that they just jumped off a plane, that they hadn't fought in all these previous battles, that they hadn't shed their blood. Who do they think they are? And throughout the episode, you see them having to earn their stripes to gain acceptance. That's exactly the attitude of the older brother. I've been here in the front line. Where have you been? I've worked for my father. I've been through the mill. Who does this brother think he is parachuting in? A deserter, no less. Totally self-righteous. And, of course, an absolute picture of the Pharisees. That's who this older brother really represents. That's who Jesus is gunning for here. The Pharisees, the scribes, are, are those who are long-standing, hard-working, never left the fold, Served at the temple of God, close to the presence of God. I guess we would say, in our terms, been here at Charlotte Chapel all, all our lives, in with the bricks. Unfortunately, these people think God owes them something. And they don't really think they're sinners. It's a danger, isn't it? Particularly if you grew up in a Christian home and, and your grandparents are Christians and your parents are Christians. You can kind of assume that God owes you one. Think that you're entitled. It's important that we sort this out, isn't it? Not only because of our salvation, because it's at stake, but also because it will leave us feeling very angry if we're working in this kind of merit paradigm. Angry with God because we feel as if we've earned something and God's not given us a reward. Uh, reminded me this of. A story I heard about a pastor who uh, went into his new church and just started preaching the, the Bible and the Gospel. And after six months, about a third of the church uh, clubbed together and walked out the door. And he hadn't been expecting that. And he really struggled with self-pity and even a sense of anger. But he said that the, the verse that helped him through was from Corinthians. Chapter 4, verse 1. I think it's Second Corinthians. The verse where Paul says, Therefore... Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, therefore we don't lose heart. 
He said, that verse was so helpful to me that the work that I do for God is not something I deserve, it's not something I earn, it's a mercy. And he recognized that if only one person had turned up at his church the next week, it would be a mercy. You see, if we don't have this, this proper paradigm, this grace paradigm, then we're going to get angry like this older brother and we're going to be sulking outside the party. And the Father pleads with us this evening, if this is us, and he says to us tonight, come in. Come in and celebrate my grace. Verse 31, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. It's as if he's saying that it's it's all there for the asking for you. I could have given you a party if you'd asked for it, if you'd humbled yourself. But instead, you work for me. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father's not backing down here. He's very compassionate, but he's not backing down. We may be ungracious, but he is forever gracious. And indignation on earth will never dampen the celebration of heaven. But what a sad thing it would be for us personally if we missed out on the grace of God because the merit paradigm came in, what we can do for God. In conclusion, Liam Morris says something very true in terms of application. He says that this parable, it's true for all three I think, it says something to the tax collector and the sinner and it also is a message for the Pharisees and scribes. So first of all, I want to address those of us here who would be in the category of tax collector and sinner. Those of us, in other words, who without doubt have strayed far from God. And there will be some here this evening. Maybe not with your feet, but in your hearts, strayed from God. And maybe it's something I don't need to convince you of this evening. You know the reality of your sin. Because right now, Tonight, you're in a pigsty. Maybe you're even a Christian and you've wandered back to the far country. And you're in dire straits. If you're in that category this evening, let me say to you, if you are lost in that sense, if you come home to God tonight, He will welcome you. For repentant sinners, God always has a welcome mat. That's what this passage teaches us. Yes, you do need to come saying, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And no, you can't come by your own merits. You have to come through the death of Jesus Christ for you. But when you come, if you come, the Father will run out to meet you. He'll embrace you. He'll accept you as a son. Will you come tonight? It would be, it would be wonderful tonight. Not just in this place, but but in heaven, if you came. But let me also say something to, to the Pharisee or scribe. This may not just be those of us who, who have never accepted the grace of God, but even some of us Christians who have let some of the Pharisee attitudes come in. Maybe even as I told that opening story about the church congregation, maybe even there we could see something of ourselves. Some of the attitudes that we have. It's easy to have never strayed far, but be equally lost. 
The older son was lost, he just didn't know it. The older son was lost, it's just that he was coming to church, he was close by. And I say to you tonight, beware. Beware. It doesn't matter if you miss the grace of God in the last analysis by an inch or by a mile. If you're outside the door. So the Father's pleading tonight. He's inviting you to come in. Come inside. Join the celebration. And then join the search party for lost people. That's what God's calling us to this Sunday evening. Let's pray together.